This is a Federal News Network podcast. Welcome to Fed Life, a weekly roundup of news about federal pay and benefits, employment policy, and investing and retirement planning. Brought to you by WEPA. Here's your host, Tom Temin. Welcome to the show. This week, we look at what had been promising about the economy as it relates to your retirement, and then the financial whirlwind still swirling around that sort of flattened near-term expectations. But we start with one organization that has a good pulse on the federal workforce and what its concerns are, the National Active and Retired Federal Employees Association, known as NARF. We covered a lot of territory when I spoke with NARF's Vice President for Policy, John Hatton. People are concerned. I actually had a reader write to me asking, well, are TSP funds insured? Unfortunately, no. <laughs> Nobody's uh, you know, investments are insured yet, at least in this country. But I guess people are thinking about the budget now being right. dissected and pulled apart. Tell us more. Well, the first opening salvo of the budget negotiations began with President Biden putting out his budget and some of the more detailed parts of it. So that's just kind of a request to Congress for what they want for agency spending. It includes legislative proposals that, of course, would need congressional assent for those. What I think we're looking at is what's the next back and forth going to be with Congress? Do House Republicans and Senate Republicans come back with something that looks to cut spending much more than Biden's budget does? Does that include cuts to federal benefits? Where do the budget negotiations go from there is kind of what we'll be monitoring in this process. Right. And that pay raise question is, I think, tantamount. I was talking to Senator Van Hollen, who, of course, is behind one of the backers of the FAIR Act. But if you dissect it, and this is something else a reader pointed out, that 8.7 percent, which is equally divided in the FAIR Act between base pay and locality pay, actually results in much less than an 8.7 percent raise because four and a half percent of it is only your locality pay. So it's 4% of the locality pay, and the other is 4.7% of your base pay. And so it doesn't really come out to 8.7% mathematically. Well, I think it comes out, it depends on whether you get that average locality pay increase or not. And, and I think it is the 4.7% across the board, and then 4.7 percentage point increase in locality pay. So some people might actually get more than that, and some people may get less. Now, Do I think that 8.7% is going to be enacted? No. Biden's budget included 5.2% for a pay raise. It said on average, I would expect that to be 4.7% across the board and a 0.5% average on locality pay. Now, if Congress does nothing, that will go into effect. The president puts out his alternative pay plan in August. He puts an executive order out in December. If Congress is silent in appropriations, whether it's a CR or full-year appropriations, that presidential pay raise will go through. And so we'll see if part of those budget negotiations, though, include some negotiation over the pay raise. And for those that might be thinking of retiring or who are retired and they are still on the Federal Employee Health Benefits Program plans, there is the call now from OPM to look at Part D, which was never part of those plans because the federal plans were better than Medicare Part D in terms of the benefits there. Now that's been all sweetened up already by last year's legislation. Right. And so what are people thinking there? We've seen that call letter from OPM, and that encourages plans to integrate a prescription drug plan through Part D through something called an employer group waiver plan, which is something that private sector employers do for their retirees to provide drug coverage. 
And so we will have to see in the actual contracts and in the plans that are offered for the 2024 open season what the actual details look like. But I think it's clear that it's going in this direction. I would expect a lot of plans to offer this add-on. Now, the way it will work for people is that the guidance says your coverage needs to be equal or better through that Medicare Part D add-on to your existing plan. The other thing, it's not going to have an additional premium. So people think, oh, am I going to have to go out and buy Part D? No, it'll just be integrated with your FEHB plan if you are a Medicare-eligible retiree. You will also have the option, according to OPM's guidance, potentially opt out of that because some people would face higher premiums due to their income. Right. So it's almost as if the supplemental plans long offered by different groups and AARP and so (laughs) forth, which put B and C together would, in effect, just pull in D also. Yeah. So I think there may be two different ways the plans will go about it. One is that Medicare Advantage, where it combines A, B into kind of a C plan and D, or one that just adds on the Part D. So it gets very complicated. Again, we need to see the details of it. But with the legislative changes through the Inflation Reduction Act, there's a lot of benefits that accrue through Part D. One, Medicare is going to be negotiating prescription drug prices. There's going to be a limit on out-of-pocket expenses to $2,000. There's going to be limits on insulin costs. There's going to be limits on co-payments for catastrophic coverage. And there's going to be limits on increases in premium growth, plus Part D already had manufacturer drug discounts. So there's a lot of benefits that, by integrating with Part D, can accrue to those FEHB plans and retirees in it. So I think, overall, people will benefit from this new development. But again, we need to see the details. People need to be able to pay attention to what their options are in terms of what their costs may be based on their income, too. Right. And you need that calculator on the desk to really do your homework, right? I was going to say slide rule, but I don't think anyone still uses those anymore. Yeah. I think there'll be a lot of confusion and, and a lot of decisions and a lot of personalization on this, too. So the best thing is never get sick and don't need drugs. We're speaking with John Hatton. He's vice president of policy and programs at the National Association of Active and Retired Federal Employees, joining me here in studio. And there is a lot of plus-up called for in the 2024 budget for OPM itself. Yeah. And OPM has been seen as a little bit of a backwater in terms of cleaning up the process of figuring out annuities so that you get it when you retire and not three or five or six months later and so on. What's your feeling about what OPM needs to do if they get all this money? Well, they've included in the budget and in their budget justification to Congress that they want to do an online retirement application that they piloted and start to move towards a digital case management system. I think both of those things are really good ideas. Right now, a lot of cases come to OPM with errors. And so you can say, well, that's the agency's fault. They should have given the right information. But when you or I may go online and fill out an application, usually there's that little red asterisk, oh, you're missing this documentation, or you need to upload this file. So some basic processes that happen that we're used to don't really happen in the retirement process that make it slower and make it more difficult for OPM to process your cases. So it's not always their fault at that time. But if you make the entire process better, I think you can cut down on some of those delays. So in other words, the delays don't necessarily originate with OPM because if someone worked for six different agencies, and it's common for people to work several places over their careers, or they left government and came back, there's a lot of nitty gritty, picky calculation you have to do down to pennies times periods of time, according to the calculator for annuities. Yeah. So it's one, having the documentation from those different agencies. Sometimes if they weren't carried over from one agency to the next, they might be at the National Archives in St. Louis. And so they have to get that. 
OPM may have payroll data, but they don't have all the personnel file data. So they need to get that. And sometimes it is OPM's processes are very paper-based, so they can improve that too through the digital case management. So there are a lot of things. One of the common errors that happens is there's not enough showing that you had five years of continuous coverage for FEHB, and you need that to have it in retirement. So there's a gap there. OPM can't process your retirement because it doesn't know if you have health benefits. And also, with respect to OPM, and again, talking with Senator Van Hollen the other day, will OPM, and what's your sense, if it should, or what do people want OPM to say about some definitive policy on returning to the office? Or could the policy say, it's up to individual agencies, and then they could go about deciding what they want to do in D.C. and anywhere else in the country? Yeah, a lot of it has been agency by agency, and there was just a congressional oversight hearing on OPM where there was a lot of consternation about bringing employees back to work from the Republican side of the aisle. And so, you know, I think there'll be a lot of pressure from Republicans on that, at least in the House side, even as there are clear benefits to some telework with cost savings on space and some productivity. Uh, But I do think it needs to be a case-by-case basis, and I think it's been approached that way for the most part by agency. It seems like GSA needs to be a part of any of those discussions, because if you're going to consolidate leased space... Right. That's a GSA thing. You're going to turn some of it over back to the landlords or whatever... I mean, if you're going to say we're going to do telework and accrue cost savings from space, you certainly need to (laughs) incorporate GSA into that strategy. Or give everyone a really big, big cubicle for when they do come (laughs) and you just share. You get the left when you're in, you get the right-hand side when you're in. And I wanted to ask you about the Default Prevention Act. Yeah. And this is something that there's a bill by that name goes back many, many years. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously, right now we've hit the debt limit. And the Treasury is employing extraordinary measures to make sure the U.S. government doesn't default on payments on bonds, on Social Security benefits. The House Ways and Means Committee recently passed this Default Prevention Act, which would tier the priorities for payment in the case that those extraordinary measures are exhausted. So tier one is bond payments, Social Security, Medicare. Tier two is DOD payments and Veterans Affairs payments. Tier three is everything else. So if you're a federal retiree hoping for your federal retirement benefits, well, you're third in line behind a lot of other things, including DOD contractors. So we'll see if that gets a vote on the House floor. I don't expect it to pass Congress, but that's the type of thing you need to look at if we actually hit default. Who's actually getting paid? And I think it would be a disaster to have so many people that are owed money from the government not getting payment. That, to me, is a default. It's not just not paying bondholders. Right. Under that system, then, if the bondholders are first and DOD and VA second, then basically your annuity, your retirement benefit, your pay becomes the equivalent of a subordinated debenture. Yeah. And so that's not an approach that we support. (laughs) So hopefully uh, there'll be a deal on the budget and the debt limit to prevent that. John Hatton is Vice President of Policy and Programs at the National Association of Active and Retired Federal Employees. As always, good to have you on. Thank you for having me. We'll take a short break, and when we return, Certified Financial Planner Art Stein will review the Thrift Savings Plan return so far this year. Things were looking pretty good until a thing called Silicon Valley Bank came along. I'm Tom Temin. Welcome back to FedLife. I'm Tom Tammen. After a scary year of across-the-board losses, 
The Thrift Savings Plan funds, like 401k plans generally, were showing strong gains in the first quarter of 2023. Then came a string of bank collapses and some near misses. I reviewed your TSP year-to-date with certified financial planner Art Stein. Yeah, well, the returns have been very good so far this year. And year-to-date, which means, you know, from the beginning of the year through yesterday, all the funds are up. The G fund's up 0.8%, F fund's up 2%, C fund a little less than 4 S fund 2%, I fund 3%. And the L income fund is up 1.5%. So it's been a very good year. Now, since this problem happened with the Silicon Valley Bank, which really was March 9th and 10th, then we see that the stock funds are actually down. But taking that into account, since the beginning of the year, the stock funds are still up and, you know, had a good quarter. So what's an investor going to do? To begin with, they need to look at you know, what do they actually have at risk? And of course, government employees and retirees have this great set of guarantees that no one else has, and they really don't need to worry as much. I mean, if you're a federal employee, it's not like you work in the private sector, like we've been reading how even major companies like Amazon and Google, et cetera, have been laying off thousands of employees. Well, the government doesn't work that way. And actually, you know, if you have a bank run, there are a lot of government people that will be working much harder. Federal retirees, again, are in a much better situation. They have a federal annuity that's guaranteed. That's their pension. And FERS retirees also have Social Security, which is actually guaranteed. Both of those have cost of living adjustments. You know, they've got their health insurance. So they should be in a much more secure situation. Now, in terms of their actual investments, for the C and the S fund, which are the stock funds, how much do they own of the banks that have been affected so far? So of the banks that have been affected so far, the Silicon Valley Bank was in the S fund, as was First Republic, I guess, at the end of 2022. But I think that they were switched to the S&P 500 index, not by the TSP but by the people that run these indexes. You know, it's not a TSP decision. They're just using indexes, and those investments are managed by BlackRock and some other companies. So there's no immediate concern. Now, if we had massive bank runs in the United States, you know, that's obviously going to kill the stock market, and I'm not quite sure what it's going to do to the bond market because there might be a flight to safety, and bonds might look good to a lot of investors. But I don't see that happening because, one, Silicon Valley Bank was a really unusual situation. They clearly didn't manage their investments very well, and it didn't match up with their liabilities. There are a few other problems. But even they could have survived if there hadn't been what we call a bank run. And a bank run is when people just start pulling their money out of the bank, even though they may not have to. Silicon Valley Bank, such a large percentage of their deposits were not insured. And that's not true of most other banks. I've read that as much as 90% of the value of the deposits in Silicon Valley Bank were not insured because they were over the FDIC limit. In a typical bank, that's closer to 20 or 30%. We're speaking with certified financial planner Art Stein. 
So the question is, getting back to, say, some of the TSP funds that might have had these in them as part of the you know index funds, if they are such a small percentage of these index funds, what's the mechanism by which something occurring at Silicon Valley Bank and a couple of the others, European banks, affect the stock market so much? Well, because one, they are part of the stock market. And, you know, clearly their stock values have gone down. So to the extent that those bank stocks are held by the C and the S fund, there's one effect. But also, you know, these type of bank failures are seen as bad for the economy. So people tend to sell stocks when they happen. And that affects the entire stock market. And do you sense that there's maybe a almost an underlying anxiety these days because people are looking at Social Security, seeing the Congress's refusal to even consider anything substantive to try to extend the solvency of that fund, of the, of the Social Security? And the same thing is true of Medicare, really, for that matter, is also unsustainable. And if you look at the trends in health care spending by the federal government, and then you look at interest rates, and then we hear all these warnings about how much of the federal budget will have to be devoted to paying the service on the national debt. And you add that all up, it's almost like the couple of bank failures are the straw that's breaking the camel's back in a lot of people's minds. I think it's way too soon to talk about breaking the camel's back. And remember, with Medicare and Social Security, the government can just print the money to pay the bills. And everybody expects that. I expect that. I don't think any senator or congressman is really going to let those programs go bankrupt. They're not going to want to be around if they were part of voting against the money needed to continue those payments. I mean, there are just way too many people dependent upon that. But if the government is just printing more and more money to pay those and they haven't made any other reforms, you know, you expect that to be inflationary. And, you know, we've seen inflation go up a lot. And then the question you would want to ask is, well, if we expect inflation to remain high, you know, because of the deficits in the Social Security Trust Fund and the Medicare Trust Fund and things like that, how does that affect our investment strategy for long-term and short-term investors? And high inflation reduces the purchasing power of the bond funds, F and G, and long-term, you would expect it to increase the value of stocks because companies can charge more. And historically, when inflation has hit, you know, long-term stock prices and dividends have adjusted. Right. So you've got this situation then, I guess what I meant when I said the straw breaking the camel's back, I meant from an investor flight or sell standpoint, not from the government going to collapse. But people see the trends and they see the size of the debt relative to GDP, and it's going to be bigger than GDP in a short while. I think at some point that dawns on people that, yes, it can print money, but is that what we want the nation to be doing in perpetuity, is printing money at the levels it has been for, say, the past five years? You know, Tom, I think that, you know, individual investors, what they need to do is to have clear and appropriate investment goals to have a suitable allocation between the stock and the bond funds and for their outside investments between stock investments and bond investments. And then they just need to maintain perspective and a long-term view and long-term discipline. And that to me, you know, as an investment manager means when stock prices go way down, we buy more. And if bond prices go way down, we buy more bond funds. 
You know, you want to be a little counter-cyclical. And historically, that would have given you a much higher rate of return. And for anybody trying to understand these things and then to invest accordingly, it's very important to understand the difference between stocks and bonds and how that affects your investments. But if you really want to get into it, then you need to understand things that, you know, only really sophisticated bond traders do. I think that people should look at the historic returns. And really what that means historically is that stock funds over long periods of time outperform the bond funds by a significant amount. And that difference was high enough to make putting up with a greater volatility of the stock funds worthwhile because they, you know, they tended to have a much higher rate of return. Not every year, maybe not every five years, and in a few cases, not even every 10 years. But the bond funds, very unlikely to maintain purchasing power after we take into account taxes and inflation. So if you're putting your, you know, long-term money in something that's losing purchasing power, that's a problem. So now is not the time to lose your nerve. Well, I don't think it's ever a time to lose your nerve, but I would say have an appropriate investment goal. If you're retired and you need money in the short term from your investments, it should be invested in bank accounts and short-term bond funds. For the money that you're going to need in 10, 20, and 30 years, you need to have that heavily weighted towards the stock funds. Certified financial planner, Art Stein, as always, good sage advice. Thanks. Thank you, Tom. And that's FedLife for this week. Keep those email messages coming and we'll do our best to get to what's on your mind. I'm Tom Temin. Thanks for listening to FedLife here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. You can listen to this episode and any past episodes anytime at federalnewsnetwork.com or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Search FedLife.